Hello everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. Within a few days, other smaller concerns met the strikers' demands of 10 and 4, a uniform scale of the wages for blacks and white workers, and recognition of the elected strike committees. Even locals of the Food Workers Industrial Union with 1,400 members was established during the strike. Each local was interracial, though black women made up the great majority of the members, and black and white women served together on shop committees. 100 women, mostly black, joined the Communist Party. One of them wrote, I am 42 years old, married. I have worked for the same company, Funston Company of St. Louis, for the last 18 years. I also belong to a fraternal organization and to a church. Before the strike, I was earning $3 per week after the strike, and at present, I am earning $9 per week. During the Great Depression, before Section 1A, of the National Recovery Act to stimulate an upsurge of unionization. 1,400 St. Louis women workers, most of them black, had the courage to challenge a powerful corporation and the city's power structure. The strike victory in St. Louis acted as a callus for other struggles. In Chicago, about a month later, 1,600 black and white women employed by the Sopkin Dress Manufacturing Company inspired by the victory of the St. Louis nut pickers, went on strike against wages of only $3 to $4.50 for 52 hours a week and the gym crowing of black women and girls in separate and unsanitary toilet facilities. Under the leadership of the Needle Trade Workers Industrial Union, the women tied up production in the company's floor plants. After two weeks, the strikers won their demand for wage increase for 44 hours per week, equal pay for equal work, and no discrimination between white and colored workers. The victory of the St. Louis nut pickers also stimulated strikes of workers in the men's clothing and ladies' garment industries in the summer of 1933. In August 1933, moreover, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that hundreds of laundry workers had joined the newly organized Laundry Workers Union. 80% of these workers are women, it added, and nearly half are Negroes. The immediate cause of unionization, as in the case of Funston nut strikers, is the complaint of starvation wages. The Great Depression all but curtailed the activities of the Women's Trade Union League. Publication of Life and Labor was temporarily suspended for lack of funds, and for the same reason the executive board met only six times between 1929 and 1936, conducting most of its business by mail. After 1929, no convention was held until the 1936. Local leagues were 
concentrated on easing the plight of unemployed women and seeking relief for them. While the National League devoted its attention mainly to securing legislation to outlaw sweatshops and opposing the Equal Rights Amendment sponsored by the National Women's Party with President Rose Schneiderman appeared before Senate Judiciary Committee in January 1930 and warned that the enactment of the Equal Rights Amendment would destroy all existing laws protecting women workers. Such laws, she insisted, were as necessary in our modern industrial system as our traffic laws in the city streets. Leo Woman at the 1930 conference of the WTUL was openly pessimistic as to what the League could actually accomplish in organizing workers into trade unions. He pointed to the virtual bankruptcy of the AFL with a steady loss of membership and concluded that the labor movement was facing its most crucial test for survival. The League was fortunate when a staunch, powerful supporter, Eleanor Roosevelt, arrived in Washington. Mrs. Roosevelt's association with the WTUL went back to 1919 when she had attended a tea for delegates to the International Congress of Working Women and had become acquainted with Margaret Robbins, Rose Schneiderman, Mary Anderson, Maude Swartz, and other League activists, and a few years later she joined the League. Eleanor Roosevelt's activities on behalf of working women did not stop with educational and financial activities. In 1926, she joined in the mass picketing by 300 striking women paper box makers. And in 1930, she publicly endorsed the ILGWU strike of Fifth Avenue dress shops. Mrs. Roosevelt, wife of the governor, commented the New York Times is noted for her sympathies toward organized labor and especially toward women in industry. With Roosevelt's inauguration as president of the United States on March 4, 1933, Eleanor Roosevelt, member of the Women's Trade Union League, had a new opportunity to display these sympathies. On December 1, 1930, on a farm near Silver Springs, Maryland, death ended the career of Mother Jones, a hundred-year-old veteran of scores of hard-fought labor battles. A special car was chartered for a funeral coach and accompanied by an escort of honor. Mother started on her final journey to Mount Olive, Illinois. In accordance with her wishes, she was buried alongside the graves of five of her boys who were killed by strike-breaking gunmen in 1898 in a plot in Mount Olive Cemetery owned by the United Mine Workers of America. The legendary Mary Harris Mother Jones was born in Cork, Ireland on May 1, 1830. She was the daughter of an Irish agitator and construction worker, Richard Harris, and came to America at the age of five. Many attended parochial and public schools, studying elementary education and dressmaking. In 1861, she accepted a teaching position in Memphis and married George Jones, a staunch member of the Iron Molders Union and organizer for the Knights of Labor in the southern and southwestern coal fields. In his extensive travels for the Knights, Jones was accompanied by his wife and their four children. In 1867, a yellow fever epidemic swept western Tennessee and struck the Jones' home. All four of her children and their father died. To earn a living, Jones began a dressmaking business in Chicago. After the fire of 1871, she moved her shop to a building adjacent to the office of the Knights of Labor. By day, she worked for the aristocrats 
of Chicago, among whom she had ample opportunity to observe luxury and extravagance. Well, from her shop window, she saw the poor, shivering wretches, jobless and hungry. At night, she attended the rallies of the Knights of Labor. Mother Jones took part in her first coal strike in 1882 in Hawking Valley, Ohio, but it was her immersion in the struggle of the Union of the United Mine Workers of America, then a rising, vigorous, rapidly growing union, that made a labor leader of her. She led the miners in strikes such as those in Virginia in 1891, in Pennsylvania and West Virginia in 1897, 1900, and 1902. In Paint Creek, Cabin Creek, West Virginia in 1912 through 1913. In Ledlow, Colorado in 1913 through 1914. And in Kansas in 1921. She fought as hard against corrupt union leaders as she did against operators who felt they were blocking progress. Elizabeth Christman at the 1933 AFL convention, speaking for the Women's Trade Union League, pleaded with the delegates to take immediate action to organize the five million women in industry. Legions of unorganized workers are suddenly realizing that without the backing of unions, they haven't any chance to get justice under certain codes and in fighting chiselers. Women bore the brunt of the NRA's weaknesses, she declared. The following year did produce considerable spurt in female membership of the clothing unions, but in other respects the situation had not changed much. Many women were now in mass production industries, but the AFL policy of craft lucidness was unsuited to the organizing of these industries. After the passage of the National Industrial Recovery Act in June 1933, local industrial unions were formed all over the country, and they requested admission into the AFL. The Federation, determined to maintain the principle of organization by crafts, issued federal charters to organizations of unskilled and semi-skilled workers in rubber, auto, steel, electrical, and other mass production industries. However, these were only temporary charters regarded as a device for holding on to newly organized industrial locals until a way could be found to divide them up among the various craft unions. Since many AFL leaders did not consider the unskilled workers worth organizing, they hoped that in the process these workers would fall by the wayside. Disillusionment with the AFL's policy of federal unions spread rapidly among the new flock of unionists in the mass production industries. Many of the organizations launched during the union boom of the early New Deal days disintegrated. A year later, John Lewis of the United Mine Workers, who was now the leading champion of industrial unionism, argued vigorously that it offered the only suitable way to organize the mass production industries. A compromise resolution was adopted, which appeared to accept the principle of industrial unions, but it contained a writer limiting the scope of such unions. It stated that there had been a change in the nature of the work performed by millions of workers in industries where it has been most difficult or impossible to organize into craft unions. However, we consider it our duty to formulate policies which will fully protect the jurisdictional rights of all trade unions organized upon craft lines. 
The AFL leadership refused to alter the union structure to accommodate the needs of many workers in the mass production industries, produced a heated battle at the 1935 convention. When the industrial union resolution was voted down by the convention, 1,820,008 to 1,900,000, the pro-industrial unionists met separately and launched the Committee for Industrial Organization to encourage the formation of industrial unions, which were to affiliate themselves with the AFL. The CIO was composed of eight international unions, the United Mine Workers, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, the International Typographical Union, the Oilfield, Gas, Well, and Refinery Workers, the United Hatters' Cap and Millinery Workers, the United Textile Workers of America, International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers. Also, two of the most powerful founding unions, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers and the ILGWU, represented industries that employed substantial numbers of women, and the growth of these unions since 1933, especially the ILGWU, indicated even to the most skeptical that women could indeed be unionized. Furthermore, John Lewis had long supported the Women's Trade Union League and endorsed equal pay in the NRA codes and had championed the Women's Bureau. In a New York Times interview shortly after the CIO was launched, Lewis committed the new movement to equal pay for substantially the same work. In 1935, Congress passed and President Roosevelt signed the National Labor Relations Act. It gave workers the right to vote for the unions of their choice, outlawed certain unfair practices used by employers against unions, and created the National Labor Relations Board, also known as the NLRB, with the power to enforce the act. Rigidly anti-union employers found ways to circumvent the law, but it did stimulate union growth by strengthening the hand of labor organizations in their campaign to unionize workers and secure contracts. The Committee for Industrial Organization remained formally in the AFL until November 1936, when the Federation's convention confirmed the Executive Council's suspension of all international unions that had associated themselves with the CIO. Months before this, however, the CIO was already operating almost as an independent movement, ignoring the warnings and threats of AFL leaders and providing stimulus for the greatest labor upsurge in American history. In 1936 through 1937, under the personal leadership of John Lewis and with funds from the United Mine Workers and other CIO unions, a series of great organizing campaigns took place in the rubber, auto, and steel industries, among packing houses and textile workers, in electrical, radio, mining, woodworking, shipbuilding, and communications, and among cement, warehouse workers, and many others. Many of these campaigns did not involve women directly because they were not employed in the industries, but women played a crucial role, directly or indirectly, in the great unionizing drives under the CIO's leadership. In January 1936, 137 tire builders at the Goodyear Rubber Company in Akron, Ohio, sat down in protest to a layoff of 70 Goodyear workers. They were 
promptly fired, but within 10 days, rubber workers at two other major companies, Firestone and Goodrich, sat down and occupied the factories day and night. Soon, the first major sit-down strike of the 1930s was converted into an outside strike at Goodyear, and for five weeks, 14,000 workers picketed the company's plants. From the first day in Akron, I saw that women would play a vital part in the strike and perhaps even be a decisive factor in the settlement. True women workers in the Goodyear factory were comparatively few, but mothers, wives, daughters of the striking men were there, and we were getting important help, particularly in the commissary, from women employed in the Firestone and Goodrich plants. I spent Monday at the headquarters of the striking rubber workers working with the women in the kitchen, and when I left, I was filled with enthusiasm and confidence that the strikers were bound to win if they continued in the same spirit. I want to deal chiefly with the part the women were playing in the strike as members of the Women's Auxiliary of the United Rubber Workers. All the work of feeding the pickets is in the hands of the women. Only the cooking is done by two men, cooks. There are about five women helping in the kitchen with the preparation of food, between two and four making sandwiches, about six at the large restaurant counter at which meals are served 24 hours a day. Then there are dishwashers, checking and stocking girls, and the women in charge. Is your husband on the picket line too? I asked the woman who was peeling potatoes next to me. Indeed, was the proud reply. My husband is on the picket line, and so is my 19-year-old son. No wonder the men are so enthusiastic and determined. They have the wholehearted support of fine, courageous women who are with them shoulder to shoulder in this struggle. The strike settlement provided for no discrimination against members of the United Rubber Workers, a 36-hour week with a six-hour shift in the tire and tube division, and with the work week not to exceed 40 hours in all other departments, and the provision that union shop committees would have the right to deal with foremen, shoulder to shoulder with their men. The wives and the daughters and sisters of strikers marched through the business district to the strike headquarters in a great victory parade, reported Akron Beacon Journal on March 21, 1936. Their joy was unbound. Rose Peso, he recalled, not since Armistice Day in 1918 had there been such jubilation in Akron. The victory of the Akron rubber workers revealed the full power of the sit-down strike for the first time. The tactic of seizing possessions of and holding of great plants was not entirely unknown to the workers of the United States, but nothing like what was about to occur in the mid-1930s had ever been seen before. In the sit-down strike, the workers found a formidable weapon with which to overcome the powerful resistance to unionization of the giant manufacturing corporations in rubber, auto, steel, electrical, and other basic industries. The Akron victory had also demonstrated how much a woman's auxiliary could contribute to winning a strike. Many male workers, however, were still unwilling to accept the truth. Women's auxiliary sneered a group of men in the Transport Workers Union in New York City. We don't need a women's auxiliary. They'll sit around 
like a sewing circle every week and get silly notions in their heads. Let them stay at home and cook our dinners. That's what women are good for. Then on January 23, 1936, while the men of the PWU were sitting in at the Williamsburg Powerhouse demanding that the company meet their request for better working conditions, members of the union's women's auxiliary appeared by the score and threw a picket line around the plant. While the women were picketing all through the night, they also found time to make huge pots of coffee and sandwiches for their husbands inside. Two days later, John Lewis, addressing the TWU convention, paused in his speech to pay tribute to the union's women's auxiliary for its splendid contribution to the union victory during the powerhouse sit-down. They certainly helped carry the day in the greatest of all the early UAW battles, the General Motors sit-down strike in Flint, Michigan, Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.